From MGMA, welcome to the Insights Podcast. I'm Daniel Williams. All of us who work in healthcare owe it to ourselves, to our patients, and to the next generation to work together to improve our practices, our culture, and ourselves. Those inspiring words are from Erica Betts to kick off our health and wellness episode. February is National Heart Month, and we have a variety of experts to give us insights on value-based care and health and wellness, not only for your patients, but for your staff as well. That's all coming up, but first, a quick word from our sponsors. Classical music has been scientifically proven to lower your blood pressure. Listen closely. At the American Heart Association, we have an unhealthy obsession with your health. You are welcome. Get the facts at heart.org slash your health. As I mentioned earlier, February is National Heart Month. To find out why it's such an important month for health and wellness, we have Maddie Philly, Community Impact Director with the American Heart Association. Maddie, thanks for joining us today. Yeah, thanks for having me. Maddie, as you know, February is a very important month for the American Heart Association. It's also National Heart Month. Tell me about what goes on during National Heart Month and what that means to the American Heart Association. So American Heart Month is a federally designated event. It's a great time for all of us to remember what our hearts really do for us and uh, how to engage themselves, their families, friends, and communities in their overall heart health. Um, It actually started in February 1964, Um, and while it's American Heart Month, I think it's really important to know that, you know, anyone in the world can really be impacted by cardiovascular diseases. A report recently came out, actually, that said 121.5 million adults in the U.S., which is almost 50% based on our 2016 figures, it said that 121.5 million adults have some type of cardiovascular disease. Maddie, those are some alarming statistics, and the American Heart Association does an amazing job of educating and shining a spotlight on heart and health and wellness during the month of February, but what can be done throughout the rest of the year? What are some best practices that people can take so those healthy habits stick? I totally agree with you that New Year's resolutions sound great, but a lot of the time they're really hard to stick with because we set really big goals that just don't fit into our regular behavior and don't become actually part of our daily habits. And so what we really recommend is that you're setting small attainable goals, things like maybe going for a walk 10 minutes each day, or maybe things like increasing your water intake, but really goals that you can achieve. We like to follow the SMART acronym. It stands for specific, measurable, achievable, relevant, and time-bound so that people are setting goals that they've really thought through but are still small things. Going for a 10-minute walk each day is much better than setting a goal to do an hour of exercise every day and not achieving it. So I really think it's about perspective. Um, The other thing that I'd say is thinking about things that maybe wouldn't come to mind uh, initially. So maybe your initial goal is, I wanna lose 10 pounds. Well, really breaking that down and figuring out what those barriers are 
maybe it's something like you're going out to eat too much. So how can you fit in time to cook healthier meals? That's not maybe the initial thing that you think about, but it is something that's leading to that behavior. So finding out what those barriers are, are something else that we really like to address. Maddie, thanks so much for joining us today. Thanks so much for having me. We all know that a large number of our population have some type of cardiovascular disease, but what can healthcare professionals and medical practices do to help patients live healthier lives? Joining me now is the CEO of Prosper Beyond Incorporated and an expert on value-based care, Doral Jacobson. Hey, Doral, thanks for joining us today. Thanks, Daniel, happy to be here. Doral, what are the trends you've seen in practices regarding value-based care? Sure, sure. Um, I've got a couple of recent examples. Um, on the primary care side, we see a lot of folks that have implemented care navigators in their practices or someone in that role. And these folks could be medical assistants, for example. They're really trying to manage gaps in care. So instead of, I kind of liken it to being a catcher on a baseball team, um, waiting for the patient to arrive in the practice to treat them for their acute condition, reaching out and touching the patient, calling the patient, asking the patient to come in for their annual blood work, or did they get their screening colonoscopy? So really being more of a touch, um, touch the patient to make sure that they're um, taking good care of themselves than waiting for the patient to arrive and uh, treating an acute episode. So that's something we're seeing from a, a trending perspective with primary care physicians for a number of reasons. Um, the other thing that we see practices doing is really getting their entire team involved. And I think that this is really cool because we're leveraging the skill set of the entire practice. So, you know, what this looks like in practices that I've worked with is it's, um, it's the, the folks rooming the patient that might be involved in a, the, the first parts of the diabetic foot exam and really being engaged in the team, in team-based care. So it's the physician, it's the medical assistant, it's the nurse, it's the front office staff. Really thinking about it from a more of a global perspective is definitely helping from a, a wellness perspective. Um, and then, you know, it's interesting. I have a client that's a, they're an internal medicine group, and it's so impressive what they're doing from a wellness perspective. And if you ask the administrator, you know, what they do, and she says, we know our patients. And what she means is they really, really know their patients. You walk around that practice, and you'll see folks with little sticky notes on their PCs to remind a patient or to check in to see if they picked up their prescription. They keep very tight reins on what happens to a patient when they refer them to a specialist. Um, it is, they care for those folks and these patients feel very, very cared for, which is why it takes a long time to get into this practice. But it's, it's incredible how um, cared for these individuals are and they really think about all the details and they have really good, what I like to call, close the loop processes. So, if they're asking a patient to go see a specialist, they're making sure that they're calling that specialist and getting that report. Um, I, I heard one of the clinicians or one of the nurses actually say, you know, I know Mrs. Smith is never going to go get that medication filled. What else do we need to do? That's what she means when she says we know our patients. 
So they're not going to go prescribe some regimen that they know they're not going to, um, that, that they're, they're not going to execute, um, which is just phenomenal. The results that they get um, are really incredible. Now, Doral, you mentioned to me in an earlier conversation about a local project in North Carolina that really impressed you. Can you tell our audience a little bit more about that? So here in Western North Carolina, we have this phenomenal program called Project Access, which it actually started in 1996 and has been replicated across the country. And they do a lot of work around social determinants of health, which are, you know, all the other things that that are um, circumstances for a patient. They're uh, food situation, employment situation, their housing situation. So it's looking at all of those determinants. And what they do is they are um, building a circle with the physicians in this community and sharing back that information. Because one of the challenges to us, and I'll give you an example, you know, a pediatric practice might have a child that's got asthma and this asthmatic child is ending up in the ED, you know, every other month lots of expense, time off for the parent, inconvenience. I mean, not, not any way to live. Maybe the origin of that is that they need, um, they need to have their carpet replaced or their, um, something to do within their housing arrangement. So um, in, in our county now, we, we have a network of resources that it's not up to the practice to, to do this, but just understanding how do we connect the resources and then how do we circle back and make sure that everyone is on the same page regarding what needs to happen and close the loop so that we can really address the need of the patient that might not be a prescription or an office visit or referral to a specialist. It could be a referral to a community health worker. So I think this is amazing because we are seeing how holistically looking at a patient, we believe is really going to move the needle. And that's something that I know across the country we are we are working hard on. And um, those are just some success stories that, you know, I've been um, involved with recently. Doral, it's always a pleasure to speak with you. Thanks so much for joining us today. My pleasure, Daniel. Thank you very much. I really enjoyed it. A recent Johns Hopkins study claims more than 250,000 people in the U.S. die every year from medical errors. Other reports claim the numbers to be as high as 440,000 annually. Some experts believe to solve this crisis, doctors need to get patients more engaged and involved in their own health. To help me sort this out, I'm joined by Susan Childs of Evolution Healthcare Consulting. In addition to her consultant work, Susan is also a speaker and an author. Hi, Susan. Thanks for being here today. Well, thank you for having me. Susan, you focus a lot of your practice and consulting on patient engagement. Where did that interest come from? So really, I became involved with patient engagement from running practices and working with patients for a long, long time. I actually had a very sick friend who I was actually ended up being the collaboration of care between the doctors because they weren't talking to each other. And a lot of mistakes were made with communication that could easily have been prevented if somebody had listened to her. And to me, the central focus is the patient and the physician. Everyone else can be replaced. So this is the role we have to support and protect. And that's what makes the partnership of care is the physician and the patient. And it's really not hard to add a lot of patient-centered policies into what you're already doing every day. And when you have better engagement, it's a win-win situation. You have positive outcomes. 
patients are happy to pay their bill. A lot of times employers are, uh, employers are happier, employees are happier, and it works really well. And that's what the business we are in is taking care of patients. There really is a great opportunity for medical practices to engage patients. Uh, what are some of the best practices you would recommend that healthcare professionals and medical practices undertake to uh, connect better with patients, to communicate with them, help them take a more active role in their health? You know, it's, it's, it, again, it gets down to the doctor and patient in the room and how interested the patient is in becoming engaged. A lot of people I know will say to me, well, they're the doctor, they're the one that should tell me. But then you also have people who walk in with a printout of what they think they have. So you have the best and worst of both worlds. But really the best way is to communicate and to listen. I think physicians interrupt patients every 18 seconds. And that's improved. It used to be every 12 seconds. So if you take the time to listen, the patient will tell you more. And if the patient tells you more, they become engaged and they become a part of the decision making. Someone said to me that they were at their doctor's mercy, that they didn't really feel like they had a part of it. And if you find a doctor that will listen to you and be aware of what you need and answer your questions, and especially if you have printed questions that you're gonna be asking, um, the doctor can respond in full. And I think that's part of it as well. It is a shared responsibility between the patient and the physician to communicate and ask those questions. I myself, had a problem with a physician that I ended up leaving. And I said to her, I present on communicating and you and I can't talk. This is not good. Right. So, yeah. So, and you have to be able to talk to them because anyone can handle the sore throat. But when you're having the chest pain, 49% of people don't tell their doctors what's really going on. So you really have to be transparent and communicate. There's a lot of things already happening. There's the portal where you can communicate. There's patient education. There are support groups. Um, there are patient panels, um, all sorts of ways. And it's up to us to let the patients know about that because patients sometimes are afraid to ask. So it's how we offer it and what we're offering it and who's offering it. With patients and physician communication, I find that has been covered a little bit. But to me, it's just as important for the physician and the staff to communicate well so we can take care of the patient because the patient notices a lot of things. Um, and also, the more that we do not communicate, the more people tend to assume. And 95% of people walk into the door having an expectation, and that's based upon their last experience. And if that can be a good or a bad one. Um, there was a practice I worked with in Tucson where patients would walk in and smiling and reaching for their wallets as the reception very, receptionist is very confidently asking for their copay and saying good afternoon. That's one way of doing it. Another way is when I was in um, a way to have a patient not become engaged is one practice I was working with and I was waiting in the lobby and I heard a patient walk up to the front desk to check in and she blurted out for everyone to hear, you have a bad debt, you can't be seen. I mean, that's horrible. The man left in shame. You never want to put a patient in a place of shame. And that's another reason this is so important to me. I want patients to have access. I want physicians to be paid, but I want patients to have access. If they have access and they feel welcome, they will treat it that way. And if, if they walk into the, into the office and the front desk says hello and smiles at them, they're going to smile back. It relaxes them. Every little step along the way makes a big difference. 
I mean, the communication you're talking about really is simple. It's smiling at the patient when they arrive, making good eye contact, um, treating them the way you treat people in a normal setting. Um, what are some of the next steps that healthcare professionals can take? You know, the best thing they can do is correlate the care and cross-referencing works really well too. Um, if you cross-reference, for example, the, um, the lab talking to a patient and says, well, Dr. Childs is very happy you're getting this lab work. We're really glad you're feeling better. When you confirm each other's role um, within the process, the patient feels more confident and they will become a part of the process more. You're covering each other. You're affirming each other. It's also a good way to get feedback because if there is somebody new in the lab, the physician can say, hey, how did you like Susan in the lab? And I'll either tell you whether I like Susan or not, but it's a great way to see how patterns are, and it's a great way to show how physicians support staff and everybody's, again, supporting each other. Um, communicating with closure also helps with patients. Sometimes patients don't know when treatment is done or what to do next. So the patient um, will hear from the physician or PA, um, any kind of provider or nurse, things like, you're all set, you're ready to go, we don't need to see you back unless this happens again, we can do a return appointment in six months, and that way the patient knows, okay, over the next six months, this is what I need to do. Also, writing things down for patients helps a lot. As a consultant going into practices, I can remember everything, but as a patient, I'm jello. I don't remember a thing, mm -hmm. so I have to write every single thing down. So if patients go in with written questions, and there are actually lists of questions from many websites that patients should ask a physician or a provider, as well as the physician and provider offering written information. A perfect example of that is follow-up instructions um, for post-care for post -care from surgery. If you give something written, it's gonna forego an awful lot of phone calls. The patient has a lot more control over it they feel confident, they keep the directions on the refrigerator so everyone can see and take care of that person and they feel more empowered to help their family member. So it's a group effort as well. Those are some great insights on communication and how it takes a, a team effort to get that out there. Susan, thanks so much for joining us today. Well, thank you so much and if you have any other questions, just let me know. This segment is brought to you by MGMA Benefits Plus, powered by Holmes Murphy. To learn more, visit mgma.com slash benefits plus. That's some great info on what we can do for patients, but what about the people helping run the practice? What about the employees? What about the staff? MGMA senior editor Craig Weberg has been talking with health and wellness speaker and author of the book, Fit Happens, Todd Whitthorn. What are practical and actual steps that are being taken that work? There are hundreds of diets out there. There's, you know, gym memberships. And in spite of all that, we still have these numbers. So what are people doing? And do, do, these, or, do these programs work? Well, Craig, uh, the answer to that is absolutely. The reality is, as I mentioned, it is a multifactorial issue, but you've got to give people skills. Um, I believe there's a, a misbelief that that knowledge changes behavior, and it really doesn't. We have to develop the skills that allow us 
to overcome all of these factors that are coming at us because there's a lot of organizations, there's a lot of companies that really want us to do what they want us to do. You can point fingers at fast food companies or you know the big food manufacturers, but the other thing is technology has changed the way we work, uh, the way we, we recreate, so to speak. Um, in 1960, there was one out of every two Americans had a job that required caloric expenditure. Today, it's less than two out of 10 because most everybody listening to us, they're paid to basically sit and stare at a screen all day, type on a keyboard, talk on a phone, and move electrons from point A to point B. So we have to figure out, as an individual, we have to figure out how do we overcome this environment. So again, the body responds beautifully to what you ask it to do. And if you can change your behavior just a little bit, and we know, again, the science is irrefutable, that as little as 3% of, of weight loss, as well as a little in, uptick in physical activity, will substantially reduce the risk of conversion to diabetes. Now, again, the, the, it's all based on the data. And so if we, can get, if we can just stop weight gain and help people lose as little as 3%, now clearly more could be better depending on your individual circumstance. But that's the key is that we're not talking about some sort of complete, you know, cover of People magazine makeover. We're talking about giving people just a, a little change in their behavior. And we've learned over the past decade is that it's got to be easy. We have to be able to recognize that within most companies, wellness, however you want to define that, generally lives in HR. And the, the HR department's a little bit overwhelmed. They got other things going on. But again, I want to I kind of want to come back to the, the the original premise is that as individuals, each and every person listening to us right now has to understand that you can't outsource your health. You know, we we in this country, we outsource a lot of things. We get people to cook our food or to mow our lawn or to do our taxes or to wash our car, but you can't outsource health. You have to be able to recognize that you're in charge. And that's great, fantastic news. But if you are going to improve your health, you've got to figure out a way individually to navigate this obesogenic environment that we live in. And it can be done. It's absolutely possible. But we have to recognize that it is a personal decision. So now that we know the issues your staff is facing, what can we do to better help them? To give us more info on that, I'm joined by the Executive Director of Cheyenne OBGYN, Anthony Shire. Anthony, thanks for joining us today. Oh, it's my pleasure. It's, uh, it's great to participate in, in these uh, types of uh, opportunities. Thank you. In a previous episode, we talked about thought leadership. We talked about empowering employees now, another aspect of empowering employees is giving them the tools they need to take their health in their own hands. As you know, there's an incredible rate of burnout in medical practices. I looked up an MGMA stat poll that found that 73% of healthcare leaders either feel burned out or somewhat burned out. It really is an epidemic. So what can employers do to keep their staff healthy? I think that there are several opportunities to help improve the, the health and well-being of your employees. The, um, uh, you know, you talk about stress and burnout. You know, one of the uh, opportunities that a clinic has is to uh, offer an employee assistance program, or EAP is what I, I refer to. And that allows for an employee to uh, call up a set of counselors or be referred to a counselor to actually go and and maybe talk to somebody that's 
you know, outside of the clinic, that's non-biased, that can help them on a, you know, if they're dealing with a lot of high stress or maybe they're dealing with something personal in their life um, that they, you know, just had just they, they just need some help. And, you know, I know that personally I've used it several times over my career that, uh, you know, my employer had provided that as an opportunity and, you know, and uh, you just never know what is really going on with that employee in their personal life. You know, they come to work and they they try to keep the personal life out out of the work life. And but but you start to notice little changes and but just by offering it and and, and typically it's a minimal cost. It, it, it You know, it's part of our. Um, you know, like a, if a company has a life insurance policy or a, a long-term disability policies that they might offer, a lot of times these types of EAP programs fall into that. Uh, the the uh, the health side is a completely different piece that I think that employers have an opportunity to encourage their employees to be healthier. And it's one to just talk about it, but if you want to truly empower the employee to to be healthier or, or to try to achieve a better health, there might be ways to incentivize them. And so as an example might be if, if an employer is providing the health insurance coverage for the employee, th- th- there's a range uh, and there's different benefit levels that a an employer could could uh, uh, pay as far as as far as paying for their employees premiums and uh, I've seen I've seen several different cases where the employer will pick up say 75% of the premium but then they'll have a a, a healthy you type program where they have different metrics that the employee has to uh, achieve to get credit towards that remaining 25% uh, of the premium to where if uh, so examples might be if the employee was a non-smoker that might be worth something to the employer so the employer might say well I'll pay a little bit more on your on your premium you know if they have um, uh, low blood pressure or a, you know a, a normal blood pressure or maybe they have high blood pressure but it's controlled you know that would be something else that that you could measure um there's diabetes um you know there's testing you can do for that and and uh, and then weight and you know those are the things that oftentimes can cause other health factors down the road and, and I, as a, as an employer, if you want your premiums to remain low, you really want to have a healthy population. To have the healthy population, you want to try to encourage them to to be healthy. And uh, and so that so those are just some ideas um, that 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 I've seen in the past that 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 we have actually demonstrated that it works um, and it does empower that employee to take control over their own health. So what does it take to get buy-in from the employees? So as my experience has been more around the uh, the premium, the dollar, and mm-hmm. so premiums go up. I mean, for some reason, they go up and, and 
you know, employers have to make a decision. Do they keep paying a higher premium uh, or do they start to share that cost with the employee? Uh, and at our clinic, um, traditionally, we had been paying 100% of the employee's premium. But as it goes up, the, the the owners of the of the company ha they have to make a decision do they do they uh, keep paying that hundred percent or you know is there going to be a cost share with the employee and that's I think where the incentive is and that's the opportunity is that you you know let's say that it, it, it went up and the uh, and the company says okay we're now only going to pay that 80% because we're, we're not going to cover that extra increase. Uh, knowing that the reason why premiums oftentimes go up is because different risk factors and, you know, if people are not taking care of themselves and be healthy, um, then, then that, you know, they, they should be, have some responsibility. And, but then if you offer and you say, I'll pay for that, additional 20%, but we want you to show us that you're healthy. Show us that you're taking care of yourself. Show us that you're, you know, getting things under control, you know, those kind of things. To, to me, that's the, that, that, that's one incentive. There's, I'm sure lots of other things you, you mentioned, you know, like added vacation days and things like that. You know, those are also things that you could do. I mean, some people might look at it that, that they'd rather have more vacation time. And, and so you just, you, you try to find the incentive that works for the, the employee and provide that as, that, that as the incentive. Anthony, as always, thanks for sharing your time with us today. Well, it's been my pleasure. So how many practices are actually offering wellness programs? Now, how many of you are participating in those? To give us some hard data behind those questions, I'm joined today by Project Analyst for MGMA Stat, Erica Betts. Erica, thanks for being with us again. Of course, thank you for having me. It's always an honor to step inside your studio. Well, in honor of National Heart Month, I wanted to talk to you about medical practice, health and wellness programs. Um, in looking over some of your stat polls from 2018, you had two different polls that dealt with medical practice, health and wellness issues. Um, in the first poll, your team asked, have you personally engaged in preventative health behavior in the past year? What were the results from that and what stood out to you? That was a very interesting poll we did. We sort of did it in the spirit of the new year, asking in January of last year. Uh, and with over 1,100 responses, 82% of respondents said that yes, they had engaged in preventative health behavior in the last year, which we thought was a very positive response. Furthermore, we followed up the question to those who said, yes, they have engaged in these behaviors, what have you done? And the top three of those follow-up responses were exercise, improved nutrition, and stress relief. So we see people making a shift in their personal lives to improve their health. Now, that poll took, looked at health from a personal perspective. Mm -hmm. You also had a poll that looked at it from an organizational perspective. You guys asked, does your organization have a wellness program? I'm curious, how did, how did the stats uh, fare with that one? Interestingly, we, we had a lower response of, of yes on an organizational basis. Nearly half, 46% said yes, uh, leaving 50% 
excuse me, 52% of organizations not having a wellness program. Um, it's interesting, I think you noted, that because we know that burnout is problematic that we look to address in our personal lives and not so much on an organizational or professional level. Now, with that particular poll, did you go in and get any qualitative responses as well, or did you have that kind of response? We did. We, we looked back um, to those who did have a wellness program to ask what kind of things they did, and some of the suggestions that folks came up with were um, have um, chair massages in the office, you know, once a year, company volleyball team to connect after work, reduce stress, company-wide kickball game over lunch. The company can always give an hour, an hour and a half of time um, for employees to pick their heads up, connect with each other, and focus on wellness. So based on those two data points, it looks like healthcare professionals are, are doing a pretty good job staying healthy on their personal lives. But when it comes to organizations, seems like we're falling short. So are there incentive programs or other wellness programs that organizations can offer their employees? One organization described challenges that they do over the course of the year with their entire staff. Quarterly, they present a different challenge in which employees are able to engage and compete with each other. The top three winners of each challenge getting a gift card to a healthy restaurant. It's interesting this coincides with one of our consultants' advice, Ken Hertz. I know, Daniel, you've talked to Ken several times. Um, and his advice to make the most impact for yourself, your practice, and your patients is to think long-term, not short-term. And that's how these year-long challenges can help to make a lasting impact. Erica, thanks so much for those insights, and thanks for joining the MGMA podcast today. Absolutely. Thank you once again. It's always a great opportunity. Well, that concludes our health and wellness episode. Thanks to our guests, Maddie Philly, Doral Jacobson, Susan Childs, Todd Whitthorn, Anthony Shire, and Erica Betts. Also, thanks to the American Heart Association and our sponsor, MGMA Benefits Plus, powered by Holmes Murphy. Don't forget to check out our other series, Industry Insider, where we have in-depth interviews with your favorite insights guests and we go even deeper on the biggest trends and challenges medical practices face today. If you like the show, please rate and review it wherever you get your podcast. Every positive review helps new listeners find the show. If you have any questions, concerns, or ideas, please shoot us an email at podcast at mgma.com. MGMA Insights is presented by Craig Weberg, Declan McGee, and I'm Daniel Williams. Thanks for listening.